Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Mobile hunters, are you looking to make the move to saddle hunting this year? Or maybe you just want to add a few new pieces of gear or upgrade your current saddle gear. If that's the case, then head over to tetherednation.com where they've got all mobile hunters covered. Whether you're new to saddle hunting or an old timer, Tethered is your one-stop saddle shop. From saddles to ropes, sticks, ascenders, whatever it is you need, they have you covered. I've personally been using their gear for the past three seasons. Now my base setup consists of the Phantom Saddle and the Predator Platform. And if you're wondering why, I've chosen to use their gear above all else. Here's the cliff notes. They're innovative and pushing the mobile hunting forward overall. They cut no corners and prioritize the safety and performance of their gear. They care about the community that they've created and their gear allows me to hunt free. And above all else, I like to support good people doing good work. If you're interested in upping your mobile hunting game, then head to tetherednation.com. This podcast is brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. Skull Brew Coffee roasts premium single-origin coffee, guaranteeing to deliver the freshest coffee directly to your doorstep. The kicker? They're 2% for conservation certified and donate 10% of their proceeds back to organizations who support the interests of our hunting community. So go to SkullBrewCoffee.com and pick up one of their three killer roasts and fuel your hunt and fill more tags with Skull Brew Coffee. Welcome to the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 236. Today, I'm talking with my buddy, Ted Bright, about knowing when you found a mature buck's bedroom. So stay tuned. up everyone happy wednesday to you hope you are doing well hope you are feeling fine happy fourth of july weekend to you and the weekend's coming up hopefully everyone's got a little bit of time off do a little bit of barbecue and hanging out outside hopefully it's not crazy africa hot out to where you're actually able to be outside and, and enjoy some maybe some some decent weather it looks like we're gonna have some decent stuff roll in this weekend so i think 
fingers crossed that I'll actually be able to get out the last few trail cameras that I have that I have to set out here. I was hoping to maybe make a run to the north to that big piece uh, of public, but I just don't think it's going to be in the cards. And the good news is, is that I've got some cell camera pictures that are rolling in. So I'm not real, I'm not chomping at the bit to get up there because I've got some intel rolling in in some of the areas that I thought were going to be maybe the more primo areas do have a couple regular cameras that I need to get up there and check, but that's probably going to be more of a game time decision. Maybe, you know, I would say September, probably as my season, probably right before my season opens here locally. Cause I come in just a little bit earlier. Um, I'll probably go up and check them. So I kind of know what's happening up there. If I need to make a run up there in October at some point, um, you know, just kind of play it by ear at that point, I would like to get one or two more cameras out up there. Just don't know if it's going to be, uh, be in the cards, but this year was really all about just learning the area as much as I could. And if I got a couple hunts on it, then that was just going to be kind of a, kind of a bonus for, for this year. So, uh, but man, it's crazy. We're at the 4th of July weekend and it just, you know, the season it's see here, we got July, August, I got like two and a half months for me, roughly, um, before the season will kick off. Cause I open mid September here in the part of Pennsylvania that I live in. And it's kind of crazy to think that bow hunting is just right around the corner. I couldn't be more excited. And just in the nick of time, man, it feels like my archery game finally kind of all came back together and started clicking the past two weeks. I've probably shot the best that I've shot even before my injury. Um, it seems like all of a sudden, for whatever reason, things just kind of started to make sense. I started feeling good. Everything started feeling right, feeling like everything was in place. You know, it, it, it was a little bit of a struggle, man. I'm not going to lie. It, it was even as far as like gripping my release and stuff like that, like fiddling with that even like I just I couldn't get comfortable and I, I would tweak little things here and there. And, and it just seemed like I would feel good one day and then the next day I wouldn't. And it seems like the past two weeks, everything just kind of snapped into place and shots breaking felt great. You know, I, I went from kind of shooting known yardages to, you know, taking my pin to 26 yards and I use that all the way out to 30, you know, that I just set one pin at that yardage and that's, and that's what I use for pretty much every distance. Cause I'm not going to shoot at a whitetail, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, any further than 30 yards, just in the areas that I hunt, you know, not going to get those opportunities to shoot beyond that. Um, and so, you know, my final kind of step, whenever I get ready for the season, as I, I move from, you know, shooting, if I'm at 30 yards, using my moving my pin to 30 and shooting, just making sure that I'm on, I want to be consistent. I want to, you know, hit, hit bullseyes, right. I'm trying to stack arrows and stuff like that. And then once I start feeling good with that, that's whenever I'll dial my, my pin to my yardage that I'm going to use for whitetail hunting. And I usually like to do it sometime in, you know, June, July, something like that, you know, about the, about that time frame when I start jumping in my saddle in the backyard and taking some reps out of that, you know, once a week or whatever the case is, um, you know, try to shoot every day as much as I can, you know, probably a little lighter on it this year than I usually am just because of the shoulder injury. I don't want to over overdo it. Um, but you know, started feeling good. So I dropped that pin to 26 yards and, um, started flinging arrows at a bunch of different yardages, you know, without a, without a range finder. I just kind of know where 30 yard mark is in, in my yard where I shoot. And then I just kind of walk around at different yardages and, and, and shoot from those, from those areas. Um, you know, and try to make kill shots and, and shoot, you know, at a 3d target. And so, you know, it, man, it, when I started stacking arrows and shooting, well, um, I definitely put a little smile on my face cause I was on the struggle bus for a while. And it, the little thing in the back of your mind starts to creep in where you're like, man, is it ever going to come back and feel like it used to? 
Um, but finally it did. So, so I'm super stoked with that. But, uh, anyway, we're not going to belabor this up front today. We're just going to kind of get jumped into today's show. First and foremost, want to just kind of throw out the caveat, uh, having a chat with my good buddy, Ted Bright, um, out in Missouri. Um, we did have some technical difficulties along the way as you get toward the end of the podcast. Just as a heads up, um, we had some audio challenges and stuff like that. But really cool conversation. Ted's in Missouri. He's a mobile hunter. He's been hunting mobile for years. He's kind of a disciple of the beast kind of approach to hunting. I had him on, I don't know, probably a year ago. It might be even creeping up on two years ago since he was on last time. Uh, but he had a killer year uh, this past year. You know, he had a. We talk about his whitetail hunt that he had in Nebraska, um, which was awesome. And then he did a lot of self-filming this year. Um, I think that Nebraska hunt was with our buddies from Tethered. And then he self-filmed, you know, a really cool story about a buck and that he put out a YouTube video with it uh, of this killer deer that he had an encounter with the year before um, and put the puzzle pieces together and was able to kind of bring it all to fruition. And we kind of walked through that hunt because it's one of those things where, you know, he really relied on reading Topo and kind of understood even from a map perspective where his best opportunities were probably going to be the prior year, um, you know, ran in on like a, on like a whim. I won't say a whim. He knew a good deer had potentially been in there and just like figuring out where exactly. And, um, he'd kind of dialed it in man and, and stuck an arrow in a pig. Um, and he got it on film, self-filmed it. Um, just a really cool story, the way it all kind of came together and how he had to kind of, you know, play his access just right and stuff like that to make it all make it all kind of come together to get that arrow off. So without further ado, we're going to go ahead and jump into today's podcast. And as always, I want to thank you all for listening. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And today you'll recognize the voice on the other end of the line. It's a fellow I haven't had. I think it's probably been pretty close to a year, man, because last year when I was planning my Missouri hunt, you and I talked and we, you gave me a little bit of, a little bit of Intel after we got done recording, but I'm talking to none other than, uh, my good buddy from Missouri, Ted Bright. What's going on, brother? What up, Clint? Thanks for having me. You bet, man. So, uh, how's your, uh, how, how are things, man? You, you got a cocktail in your hand, right? I think we, we, we've determined that we both have a, have a beverage happening. Yes, sir. I am drinking, uh, a, uh, a glass of, uh, barrel Armida bourbon. And I got to tell you, I'm quite impressed with it. Okay. So where did you, where did you get the drop on this? How'd you, how did you find out about that? Cause I've never heard of it. I, actually. I stumbled upon it at a liquor store, a relatively large, like hole in the wall liquor store in Salina, Kansas. Hmm. Of all places, Kansas, huh? Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Now, when you read the, uh, the label on there, it's, says it's like uh, vanilla and blackberry and something else like undertones that sound kind of sweet itself, but right. it's 56.9% uh, alcohol. So hmm. the stoutness of the alcohol balances out, out really well. And it's, yeah, it's excellent. Nice, man. I might have to try to, uh, to locate some of that. So you sent me a picture of that as I was finishing eating my dinner real quick after I got back from physical therapy. And I was like, Oh man, I need to up my game. So I went, and poured myself a glass of Basil Hayden. I refer to Basil Hayden as my uh, my summertime bourbon sipper. I, I I typically like really hot bourbon, so like you know Booker's or Baker's, like something that's in like the hundred plus proof or whatever, hundred and twenty proof. I think that's it's Booker's. But Basil Hayden, I think, is like eighty proof, and I kind of prefer it during the summer because it's just not quite as hot. So right, that, right. That is, that is my that is my summer sipper, and I usually drink it neat. But today I have a cube in it. I figured today was like a good cube day. It's kind of warm outside. I did a bunch of yard work, 
So I figured we'll drop a cube in it today for for the for the festivities of summer that's just about upon us here. So I can hear. Sounds the, good. I'll, I'll have to I'll have to try out the Basil Hayden. Yes. And uh, do you do you make spheres at home? Do I make what? Spheres. I. Oh, I make, yes, I do. I make spheres. Yes. I have a sphere. I have a sphere now. So yeah, absolutely. That's the only, that's yeah, the only way to fly. Spheres. Yeah. Cause they, they just, they melt at the right rate. Exactly. And yeah. then I, I haven't done this yet, but I, I've just because it's, I don't know, is it really worth it? But if you want a, uh, a perfectly clear sphere, then buy distilled water. Hmm. I've never, I've never done that before. I've just used, you know, my old, my old fashioned tap water. So I might have to give, I might have to give that a whirl, man. That sounds pretty, uh, that sounds pretty good. I'm actually, I get a little nerdy with like drinks and stuff like that. Cause I used to bartend for a bunch of years. Oh, fun. Yeah. And so that was kind of how I made my way through college and like what I did for, you know, side money whenever I was in the band and stuff like that without bartend at clubs and stuff like that. So it's like, I got pretty pretty skilled at making at making drinks so i i usually get nominated as the as the bartender like anytime my wife has a party at the house and or my or if my parents have a party it's like i i ultimately end up becoming the bartender and one of my favorite things to make is a chin chin that's like what i drink in the fall that's like my fall hunting drink and it's like i make my own simple syrup and it's a little bit of like apple cider bourbon simple syrup a little bit of cinnamon as well and it's just like the perfect fall the perfect fall bourbon beverage. So, Oh, that sounds great. Yeah. yeah. A little old fashioned. It sounds like it is a little old. It is a little old fashioned, um, with just a little bit of a twist on it, you know, to make it more, you know, fall, like specifically fall. Like the the difference really is like the ginger simple syrup, um, is really what, what kind of makes the difference. But I do like me, I do like me an old fashioned, but I try not to have too many of them because it's, it's, uh, Cause it'll, they'll, it'll hurt you <laughs> that simple <syrup laughs> with, with the sugar, you know, it just like, they go down so quick and so easy. Um, you know, that you don't realize how many that you've had. And like, before you know it, you're like five chin chins in and you're totally not hunting the next day. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I've started even taking like a little, a, a bottle with me on my trips, you know, whenever I go out, you know, in the trailer and stuff like that, just like a little, I don't know, man. It's just something about being in that camp atmosphere, even though it's like that little travel trailer that I built, you know, having a little nip at night before I go to bed, which just makes it feel that much more cozy for whatever reason. Um, just night. It, I don't know. There's something about being in hunting camp and having a little, a little nip. I don't mind having a beer, but like something about being in hunting camp and having like a glass of bourbon just feels right to me. I don't know about you. Oh gosh. I, you know, I can probably do a better job of that. I, I, I get so focused. That I I uh, I don't want to be groggy the next morning or whatever. So I'm mm-hmm. usually the first one up. And yep. I don't know. I I probably need to do a better job of that. Right. Well, hey, you know, it's like my my thing is is like I, I don't do it every night. It's more so like those nights, like you had a long day, or maybe it was like rainy and cold out, and it's just like before I go to bed, it's not like I have a big glass, but just enough to have like a couple nips, you know what I mean? It just sends me off into la la land and then I'm, and then I'm good to go. You know what I mean? And I wake yeah. up on time and good to go the next morning. Not enough to like hurt you, but just enough to make you sleep really sound is kind of, I guess where, where I'm at, but yeah, yeah, definitely. 
So maybe you need to add that to your arsenal, but hey, maybe not, man, because you had a pretty good year. I'm, don't don't listen to this guy over here. You know, it's like <laughs> you're sticking you're sticking plenty of deer with whatever you're with whatever you're doing. So I wouldn't I wouldn't mess with uh, I wouldn't tempt fate. Maybe is a better way to put it. Yeah, I hear you. I you know it's always a, a delicate balance, right? Of uh, yeah. fun versus you know being so focused on the task at hand, but. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it just depends on where and when too, you know? Yeah, no, a hundred, hundred percent, man. Like I'll give you an example. When I was in Iowa, like I didn't have a single, I didn't have a beer, didn't have a drink, like nothing the whole time I was there. Right. Um, I was just kind of solely focused on the task at hand, which was like trying to fill an Iowa tag. Um, when I was in Missouri, I think I might've had a, a beverage one, one night, I think. But that we were also doing a lot of moving around just because I we I walked into every place blind. And so, like, I knew the next day was just going to be a ton of scouting. You know what I mean? Like, it was going to be a ton of moving. And it was hot. That was the other thing, too. It was crazy hot. But when I'm in Ohio. Yeah, that and I, yeah that did suck. And when I'm in Ohio and I kind of know the area that I'm going to be in, it's like then it's like I might have like a. I might have a drink in the evening when I get home, you know, after I have something to eat, you know, or I might have like a beer or whatever afterwards. But it's definitely not a party situation. Put it that way. It's pretty, it's pretty tame. <laughs> right. Unless you kill a booner, then it's a party situation. Well, yeah, then I'm going to kill it and then I'm going to hurt the next day and I'm not going to care. You know what I mean? That's right. Kinda, yeah. <laughs> that's always that's the, the best kinda, hurt ever. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's always kind of the thing that's in the back of my mind is I'm like, I'm going to bring this bottle and I might have a nip or two like along the way, but I'm really waiting to like dive into it when I kill. And then, you know, what ends up, ends up happening is either I don't or in the case of in Iowa, it's like I killed like the very last day and literally killed it, took it to the taxidermist and then started driving to Pennsylvania. <laughs> like there, there was no time to <laughs> there was no time to party. You know, the party was right, like me by right. myself, like <laughs> with like 17 hours of asphalt between me and home. That was essentially the party. But uh, speaking of parties, man, how's uh, how's your spring been, dude? Oh, it's been good. Uh, let's see here. You know, I mean, first of all, everybody's healthy and happy and good. You know, kids are back in school and you know, all that good stuff. Everybody's good. Good. Um, I, I've been so busy with work that my turkey season wasn't anything near what I wanted it to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, in fact, I just filled out my MDC spring turkey survey the other day and I, I calculated all because they asked for a report day by day of that you hunt. And right. I was only able to hunt six days in Missouri. And two of those days I wasn't, you know, the primary shooter. Right. Um, but anyway, so I killed two birds and I killed my first Rio ever Oh, nice in Kansas. And yeah, it was, uh, it was fun. I, I was able to call in a bird, uh, for Carl Kasuth and it was his first ever spring gobbler. So nice. Uh, that was a that's a big deal, you know, when somebody shoots their first gobbler that comes in gobbling and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. That's that's awesome. Nice. Uh and now, my son it... and I were able to go together a few times. So it was fun. Nice. now was Carl's hunt, was that in Kansas? No, that was in Missouri. Well, it was in Missouri. Nice. Awesome. Was it yeah. lo- local to you or did you guys go somewhere else? Uh it was uh, pretty close to him actually. Okay. Uh, I live like an hour from him, so it was closer to him, but got it. Yeah, it was, uh, it, it was a good time. Nice. I didn't realize Carl lived in, lived in Missouri. 
For some reason, I thought yeah. he lived. I thought he lived north for some reason, like Minnesota or something. Ernie lives there, and that's where the tethered headquarters is. Right, and that's probably why I was thinking that that that's where he was. That's where he was at. But that's cool, man. Yeah, it's always it's always fun to watch someone get their first whatever it is. You know what I mean? I'm sure he was just stoked out of his mind whenever it happened too. I bet. Yeah, he was. He definitely was. In fact, after reviewing the footage and all, he's like, "Man, I I, I was even more excited than I thought." It was really cool. <laughs> That's awesome, man. So, with your work schedule and stuff, man, are you getting out doing any? You know, did you get your all your kind of postseason scouting and spring scouting and all that stuff you want to get done? You, you are you like knee deep in all that stuff? Or are you wrapping it up? Ah, uh, man, I didn't really get a whole lot of scouting in this spring. Um, yeah, just really didn't have a chance to, you know, I, uh, and I switched jobs back in the fall and mm-hmm. then I went back to a job where I was previous and right. it's, it's awesome. You know, I love it. Um, but right now our, you know, when, when you sell capital equipment, you got to make hay when the sun is shining and yep. the sun's shining really bright right now. Right. So I'm making a lot of hay right now. Right. Um, <laughs> nice. But and and you know it's the nature of it that there will be slower times. And, yeah. Uh, you know, at, at at the same time, I guess you know when you're in sales, you want to try to hit all of your uh, your goals. You know, before well, for me, like you know, at least October ish, because I want to be able to you know hunt in right. late October, November, of course. So right, right. I I suspect that'll be the case this year. Right. And so are you going to, are you going to kind of prioritize the pieces that you're, that you've kind of, that you have familiarity with? Do you feel like this upcoming year or is there any pieces that you're kind of eyeballing still that kind of have you intrigued that might be, that might not, that might be newish or what's, what's your plan given kind of where you're at in terms of like how busy you are and stuff like that? What what are you thinking you're going to do? Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right. So, and that's a great question because if, you know, when you ask any of these guys that kill big bucks on a consistent basis, Mm -hmm. they have tabs on, you know, probably, I I don't know, what do you think? Probably 10 to -hmm. to 15, maybe, you know, Mm -hmm. uh, good bucks. And, you know, there's some trending information uh, that they have a history with and, you know, continuing to build throughout the summer. Uh, This spring, I just didn't get a chance to scout a whole lot so i didn't really add to that Mm -hmm. but going back to you know uh, like especially late season last year you know i've got several good bucks right here around the house that you know i shouldn't say probably you know two to three good bucks right over here around the house that i have uh some history with and some trending data with and i still have my cell cans out i just keep them out all year now yeah yeah um so, uh, you know, I've got some information there and then on public ground, you know, which is what I prefer to hunt. Uh, I, I've got, you know, a few ideas on a few, but not where I really want to be. Mm-hmm. But I, I learned some stuff in the early season last year 
on uh, on a piece of public pretty close by that I think I can put a plan into action. And hopefully if I kill that buck early, um, or I just know there'll be a good buck there. I don't know of a specific buck there, mm-hmm. but if I can do that and pull that off, then that'll, that'll basically bail me out for the lack of scouting that I've done. That's kind of what I'm looking at. Right. So what about that public piece? Do you find like, what is it about it that you, that you like, or that you feel has a good, that you'll have an opportunity there? What is it that's making your spidey senses tingle? Uh, so I, that's an easy one to answer, but if I answered it, then uh, that would just open the floodwaters for, for, for everyone else. And, and they could probably be pieced together pretty easily, but I'll tell you offline. Okay. It sounds good. Perfect answer. That is the, per- <laughs> that is the perfect answer. But man, you had, you had two. Well, let me back up. Let me back up for a second. I think you're right. I think it's interesting that, you know, people who are able to get on good deer year after year, it's not, it's not by accident, you know, it's kind of what you're saying, right? It's like you usually are keeping tabs on a couple different deer. You know, it's definitely a little bit different in Pennsylvania, at least in the area that I'm in, um, just based on the fact that the amount of pressure that you have around here and the amount of deer that get killed around here and they just don't get a ton of age on them. So when you do find a couple decent ones, you know, you might only have two to three and chances are they aren't going to make it through, through the year. And so it's like you're constantly kind of like turning over new deer, you know, and you're hoping and crossing your fingers to a degree that like one of them makes it through, you know what I mean? That you have some year over year data, you know, someone asked me at one point if I ever named the deer that I hunt and I said, no. And they asked me why. And I said, because they usually don't live long enough to have a name. <laughs> you know, I was like, by the time I learned that the deer is there, you know, if I don't kill it that year, there's a pretty good chance. I'm not going to see him again. Like the fo- the following year. Um, you know, I've at least in the past several years for me on the public that I hunt, it's like I don't think I've ever seen a deer two years in a row. Um, you know, but what I have kind of learned, and I'm I'm curious if you kind of find if you you find this in in Missouri as well. What I have kind of learned is that there's kind of spots that consistently will hold the better deer, and so I just kind of rely on those. It's like I almost am not so concerned with what deer are there or in the area so much as I am concerned in finding the spots where the better deer are spending time. Cause if there is a good deer in that area, chances are he'll be, he'll be in that spot eventually. Right. And so that's kind of how I play it. Is Do you, does it play out similarly in Missouri or do you, I mean, you know, I only hunted there for a week and it was awesome by the way, you know, it's actually one of the places where I'm like, I got to get back there as often as I can. Um, but I'm just curious if you kind of find it, find it similar. Or do you feel like you have more deer on public that make it year over year that you can kind of watch? Uh, no, I think you're spot on. Correct. So, you know, I don't scout as much as I, I should, as much as a lot of people do, as much as I probably could, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. If I, if I, uh, you know, wanted to sacrifice other areas right. of life, right. It's all, it's all about time management. Yep. Uh, so without doing a whole lot of, uh, you know, spring and summer scouting, then, you know, what you need to have is that library of areas, like you said, that will, that are most likely to hold that big buck. So, right. you know, you, you talk about a big chunk of public ground, you know, there's a very small percentage of it that, you know, would be a bedroom for a, a big buck, a, a mature buck. Mm-hmm. And when you when you can go across those off the list pretty easily, right? So you 
you know, you have it mapped out, you kind of have a route mapped out Mm -hmm. and you go check those three to four spots on that piece of public ground, you know, or whatever it may be. Uh, You can pretty quickly tell, you know, if there's been a a mature buck in that area anytime soon or recently, you know, uh, even if it is summer scouting, you know, look Mm -hmm. for tracks and the creek crossings and things like that. You can find out if there is a mature deer in that area, uh, you know, pretty quickly. Yeah. So I agree with you. You don't have to have uh, specific tabs and and uh, trends on a on a mature buck to say, hey, that's the deer I'm going to go kill. You know, you can just have that library of places where they're most likely to be, and then go in and confirm that. And right. if there's not, move on to the next spot. Right. And I think you know one thing. I and correct me if I'm wrong. Like I feel like one thing that you do really well. Um, that I at least have picked up some from from watching from talking to you number one, and then some from watching some of your videos and stuff like that. You actually, you know, I think we covered this on the last podcast you and I did together. It's like you're very much kind of like a, a you have a beast approach to to hunting, right? And you know, you do a fair amount of scouting, like actually in the season, if, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah, I mean, I scout my way into my tree every every time. Yeah, that's the way I look at it. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of people miss that, miss that opportunity. And so it's like, you know, to say that it's like, yeah, maybe you don't do as much spring or summer, summer scouting. So I don't do a whole lot of summer scouting. Mine is usually like, I try to do it right after the season's over and just kind of knock it, knock it out and then kind of be, be done with it and stay out of the, not because I don't like being in the woods. I just be honest. It's like, I, I don't want to have mosquito bites all over me from like May through August. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if I'm being, if I'm being honest, you know, but there's a ton of value to actually do it during the season. Cause you're actually, you're seeing what's happening during those pe- specific periods where you'll want to hunt it. So it's like, if you're walking to your tree or whatever, and you hit this Creek crossing or whatever, and you find like a big track and it might not be the deer that you're particularly hunting or the, maybe the one that you kill, you know, or maybe you see a couple big tracks, you're like, all right, there's a couple big deer in here, you know, or you find like a new scrape area that got laid down and it's like the second week of October. It's like, well, Hey, mental Rolodex, this spot pops off second week of October, right? You don't know that when you go in the, after the season's over, you just find a scrape line that's opened up and you have no clue when it was made. So you still have to validate it during the year anyway. And I always say like, I feel like the scouting you do in season is like, if you could only scout one, let me ask you this. If you could only scout during one time of the season, when would it be? Or not even the season, one time a year, when would it be? Uh, Gosh, I don't even know how to answer that because I mean, I, the way that you outlined it there, I agree with. Yeah. And a first and foremost, I am scouting in my way in every single time. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I agree with you on the summer scouting thing. So I, I hate mosquitoes just like you do, mm-hmm. but by golly, if, I'm if it was hunting season, I'm going to go tolerate this mosquitoes and yeah. I'm not even going to complain about it. We're just going to talk about killing that big buck, right? Right. Uh, to, to, I'll forget all about those mosquitoes. But in the summer months, uh, yeah, I mean, my priorities are just elsewhere. You know, my scouting yeah. consists of uh, taking the round, the, the back way to take in my daughter to get ice cream or something, you know, with the binos in the truck. Yeah. That's what some, summer scouting is to me because. I know what's about to happen during the season. Yeah. And, you know, you also look at that like, all right, so that, that scouting into the tree every time has a higher value to me than 
uh, scouting a, a big buck coming out of a corner into a soybean field for six nights in a row to know that, you know, during July and right. uh, and not not taking my daughter to get ice cream, you know, and right. or, and just driving by once or twice to confirm that. Right. So, I, I guess the roundabout answer to your question is that it's it's in season because that's the most recent intelligence. Right. Yeah. No, I feel, I feel the same way, you know, and I mean, I do a fair, I do a fair amount of scouting. I forget who I talked to about this. We are actually, I just talked to somebody about this. We were just cutting up and actually, I think it was my buddy, Tony Peterson. I had him on, on a podcast and and he and I were just kind of shooting the bull, you know, during the podcast. And I, and I kind of said something to the effect that like, I feel like sometimes people almost over scout during the, during the off season where it's like, to what you're kind of saying in a di- but way I kind of framed it was in a different way. I was like, not I was like, look, anytime you can be in the woods, I think it's valuable. So like, let me just say that before people, before I get flamed and I get a bunch of emails or something that says that you, that you, that I suggest that you don't, that people don't scout. But I think there hits a point of diminished returns where the amount of time you're spending scouting, you're getting very, very little back. And the way I kind of framed it was like, for example, if you're going to a new piece, there's a ton of value of scouting it. Right. Cause you know, nothing. Right. And so that, you know, you're going to learn a hundred percent more today scouting it than you knew yesterday. Right. And then the next day you'll learn a little bit more, but if you've scouted it a bunch of times and maybe you've hunted it, you know, a couple of times, it's like, well, every time you now step into the woods, like that percentage of info that you're getting becomes smaller and smaller. Right. And so to me, then, sure. you know, to me, then it's like, all right, could your time be better spent elsewhere? That's why for me, a lot of times I won't even re-scout areas that I've hunted. I'll kind of know what's already going on. If I'm going to spend my time scouting, I'm going to a completely new area that I've never been to, you know, and that's going to be what I'm going to spend my time doing because I'm getting more value out of it. I don't know if you kind of feel the same way or if, if or if you feel differently about it. What do you think? No, I, I do. Um, yeah, I, I pretty much agree with that. I mean, to me, the uh, when I'm I, – and I, I love going for hikes. I kind of refer to it as more of going for a hike right. in that like late, late spring time frame. you know, I mean, if I see a rub line, I'm going to check it out and I'll, you know, I'll slow down and everything. Mm-hmm. But my goal is to cover a lot of ground and, and see everything in the woods, right. not just, uh, you know, I'm not going to slow down and inspect things to the degree that I would during the season because it, it's not as relevant. Right. I mean, right when you're looking at it in the season, you're looking at uh, what tree am I going to pick to kill this buck? Right. And I, there's, I don't see that uh, around here anyway. You, you, I don't think that you can really do that um, in the, uh, let's say in the, you know, in the springtime for the following fall, just because things change so much. Yeah. That area certainly might hold that same buck, but I don't think that you can select a, a killing tree typically. Right. Well, not only that, but it's like you have no clue whether that buck that made that sign is even alive at that point. Right. 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 You know, so it's like yeah. all that tells you goes back to what I was saying, which is like I'll find areas that that consistently have buck sign and I'll prioritize those places, scout my way in during hunting season. And if I find something that kind of is out of the ordinary, I'm like, oh, well, maybe I should be checking this out and this might be where I need to be setting up. Then I do that. But, you know, I'm I'm trying to. I think what we're both saying is that you need to take the, the, the information that you're getting at each point of the year, whenever you are scouting in context, right in season, super valuable. Cause you can probably make a move 
and make a plan based off of what you're currently seeing outside of season tells you where at one point a buck was doesn't tell you when he was there doesn't tell you what buck buck it was necessarily but it might be a place worth coming to pass through to check out during the season to see if to validate what you're seeing in postseason is kind of the approach right yeah yeah i totally agree nice yep get in there and check it out and hopefully you've got you know your stand on your back or your saddle around your waist and when you get there you're uh you know consumed with selecting that perfect tree right and it's, you had a little and so with that we're going to make a pivot now because you had a knack for selecting that right tree pretty consistently this year <laughs> in a couple of different in a couple of different occasions so if if i'm not mistaken you went you went to nebraska right that's that was one of the hunts that you that you ended up doing if i'm not mistaken is that right Yes. Yeah. I went to Nebraska and uh, killed a decent buck on opening day. Right. So September 1st, September 1st. Oh, nice. So uh, that was, you made quick work of that one. So, you know, I want to talk a little bit about that hunt because, you know, people that listen to the show know that I love going to new places and, 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 you know, hunting different places and sometimes just going in on a whim or blind or whatever the case is. And one of the questions I always get pretty consistently on the show from folks that listen or, you know, when they ask questions and so forth is, you know, how I try to figure out a new piece quickly, especially if I'm going out of state or, you know, how do I get over, you know, in the intimidation factor of, you know, a completely new piece and, and that everything is absolutely unknown. And sometimes it's completely different habitat than I've ever hunted. Like a great example this year is I'm going to Kansas, never hunted Kansas. Don't know that I'm ever going to get there to actually even scout before I get there to hunt. And the area that I selected was a place that doesn't have a lot of trees because I wanted less hunters or less, less deer hunters. So I, I went to an area that didn't have a lot of trees that would force people if they were going to hunt there to hunt predominantly from the ground. And, you know, and so I'm going to be completely out of my element. So what is it about like, you know, talk to me a little bit about Nebraska. Like, why'd you choose Nebraska? You know, what was it like hunting there? How did you break down the piece that you were on? Just kind of walk me through your process. Sure. Yeah, I uh, chose Nebraska quite simply because there was I had a, a lot of uh, craziness in my professional, in my career and job and everything with COVID. And mm-hmm. uh, I was actually, I was, you know, unemployed for a little while. I mean, it was just kind of crazy uh, scenario. So I chose Nebraska because it was last second and that's all that I could plan to do. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Nice. Which is a per, which is a, which is a perfect plan. So, I mean, you walked in then essentially without knowing much about where you were headed, right? Yeah. I really didn't have any idea at all. I'd never been there. Uh, you know, had only aerial scouted it and right. That was, yeah, that's it. So when you got there, like, what was your, oh, well, let's stop. Let's, let's talk about the aerial scouting first. Like, what did you think of, of the proposition of hunting Nebraska based on what you were seeing from, from aerials? I mean, did, did you see anything that felt familiar or did you, or were you looking at it going like, man, this is like hunting Mars, like, <laughs> like completely not knowing, you know, completely an unknown situation. It was definitely like Mars and the aspect that I, I I could recognize that it was unlike anything I had ever hunted before. Right. Uh, But I mean, it was cool. And I know that anytime you look at it, at the aerial maps, it just doesn't, it seems like it's across the board. It doesn't matter what the terrain is or anything. It's going to be bigger when you get there, right? It's going to appear to be bigger country when you get there. Right. And just take that into consideration. Anytime you're looking at the screen, you know? 
Right. And so did you, I mean, did you start kind of marking things off immediately, like places where you knew you didn't want to go? Like, how did you start to kind of pinpoint? Because, I mean, for me, when I e-scout a place, like really to your point, a hundred percent, like when you get there, it's going to be bigger than what you thought. Right. And, and it's likely going to look different than what it does, you know, on online. But the one thing I've found that is consistent is I can pretty quickly start crossing things off that I don't want to go look at and, and then kind of help me focus on like a smaller area to where I don't, that's how I reduce the intimidation factors. I take a piece that just say it's 5,000 acres. I'll take that piece and really quickly get to a place where it's like, all right, I'm really probably only going to focus on like, this a thousand acre area, you know what I mean? Cause this is where the stuff is that I feel like is probably going to be either one seems familiar to me or two, where I f- just feel like the best habitat is going to be. Do you, do you kind of follow a sim- similar process? No, I don't do that because I hmm. don't feel like I even have an educated opinion on it. Hmm. So w- the way I do that, Clint is I will look at this map uh, just briefly, you know, uh, I don't know, 20 minutes just enough to understand it conceptually and remember a few of the, like if there's a major river, you know, some major tributaries or uh, fields, food plots, whatever, try to uh, just reference them in your mind and, and then call the local wildlife biologist because, you know, like you said, you're trying to eliminate areas and all this and that, but if you don't have a feel for the land, then in my opinion, you're better off asking somebody that has a feel for the land. Right. It, uh, I, and you'll be able to tell, you know, these guys are typically willing to share information. I mean, 100%. almost like they're super happy to do it. You yeah. Know, like you've made their day. Yeah. Uh, so that's what I rely on. So, you know, I, even if I have to sift through some stuff, I want that opinion from that person that knows that land, you know, from a wildlife perspective. And, right. And then from there, then I will. Uh, you know, highlight, preferably highlight areas that I want to go, but then also ask about, you know, where, where should I not go or whatever. Right. Uh, so ultimately, yes, I want to get to that point. But to me, I think you're just kind of spinning your wheels if you're trying to do all of that on a map without any reference of somebody that's, that's been there and knows the land. Right. No, that's a great point, man. And that was kind of, truthfully, it was one of the things that helped me whenever I was in Missouri, because one, I was talking to you. Right. It's like texting back and forth, you talking with you and just trying to get a sense of like a couple different places. And then there were a couple places that were a little further west because the one place I went was in the east that I actually called, you know, the the conservation officer that kind of managed those particular pieces of public and had a conversation with him. And then he actually had a little bit of info about a couple other places that his buddy managed that he didn't manage, but he knew knew about. Right. And so he kind of started pointing me in, in a couple different directions, which was super helpful in trying to understand where I needed to be. So I think that's a, a great, great piece of advice is that, yeah, or rely on your, 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 your friend network, right? It's like doing that, you know, you know, in Missouri with you, whenever I went to Iowa, did the same thing, you know, going out to, out to Kansas, you know, my buddy Chad's already been out there and kind of made, you know, a couple contacts with some locals and stuff like that, that we're using to try to figure out, what the situation is on a couple of these different pieces that we're, that we're looking at. So I think you're right, man. Like you gotta, at some point you gotta try to get some form of Intel, you know, from people who actually are there, right. Whether it's social network, local biologist, whatever the case is, 
hell man, social scraping, like go online and just <laughs> join a forum that is like big bucks of Kansas in the zone or area you're, or Missouri, wherever. And just look to see like where people's photos are coming from and what time of year their photos are popping up. It'll give you a good idea of like when deer are getting killed in those areas. Right. Yeah. That's something I haven't done. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've looked at the, the data on the amount of, uh, you know, Boone and Crockett's and Pope and Young bucks killed in certain counties or whatever, but uh, I've not just like searched those uh, forums like that. That's yeah. interesting. Yeah. It, I mean, not to give away a secret, but it's like, that's definitely one thing that I've started looking at is just, if I'm going to go somewhere, you know, I've just like beating a dead horse here, but like, for example, going to Kansas this year, it's like, I'll go back and historically look at, you know, people who are in my, you know, uh, or in my friends network on social media, or I'll go on and join a forum or whatever the case is. And I'll just look to see when deer are, when pictures are being posted, like what's the, what's the time frame? Cause that'll usually start to tell me like when deer really start to move. Yeah, cause a lot of times when I'm traveling and this is probably the case for a lot of people, it's going to be around that rut time frame, like last week of October through the second ish week of November. Right. So I'm really looking to see like, when does the, when does the, when does the body count really start to stack up in those areas within that three week frame? Cause that's typically the time I'm going to want to be there, you know? And so it'll start to give me a little bit of a sense of one, the caliber of deer that's around there. And two, you know, when, when they're actually moving enough to be killable. So yeah. A little, a little not so pro tip is uh social scraping. So <laughs> we use it. In I like it. Yeah, man. We use it in marketing all the time to like find in competitive Intel and it just stands the reason that it would work also for, for deer hunting. So you're out in this, you're headed to Nebraska now, man. Like, so you finally get there, right? Like what was the, I've never been in Nebraska, so it's all foreign to me. What is the habitat and terrain like that you were, that you were getting into? Like, I know that there's some areas that they refer to as like the sand hills or something like that. I, I'm just, it's nothing like I've ever hunted before from what I understand. I'm just curious what your perspective of the habitat and terrain was. Uh, so yeah, like I said, it was unique uh, to me. I'd never experienced it before. It was um, it's on the edge of the sand hills, and you know you still see a little bit of that type of sand hilly terrain. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it was largely, you know, rolling hills, uh, you know, steep elevation changes, and uh, you know some uh, some marshy like bottoms. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, around those bottoms would typically uh, it'd be surrounded by like you know a lot of oak uh, and mast trees and you know, some river bottom trees too. Right. Right. So when you're, when you got there, right. And you, you killed on the first stage you're there. So you had a pretty good beat on what was going on, but what, you know, where did you ultimately kind of end up getting into? Like, what was the intriguing thing that led you to the place that you were ultimately going to set up? Was that something that you learned like by talking to a conservation officer? Was that something that you learned by talking to a local or was it something that you just kind of looked at on a map and was like, all right, based on everything I've learned at this point, this place looks like all signs are kind of pointed to this spot. Uh, so, you know, I know knowing that it's early season, I tend to look at water. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I hold a higher value at water versus food. I, you know, I think that when a deer gets up from being bedded all day, he's going to find the closest water that's in route, you know, in way of the food that he's heading to. So, um, I, I looked at that and I saw that in the, you know, like 30 minutes or whatever of time that I spent prior to calling the wildlife biologist. 
uh, I saw that certain water source there. And then without prompting him or anything, you know, I asked, you know, what are some of the features you would key in on or any, any insight on areas or, and he mentioned that. So that was obviously the first, you know, one of the, the higher priorities that I wanted to check out while scouting because I got there like two days early. And, okay. uh, you know, so it was, you know, basically like, uh, I guess you could say, you know, spot number one or a, however you want to look at it, but it was, um, it was, one of the most it was like the remote modest spot that you could get to on there so it wasn't just that you could just walk to it right you know it was uh gosh i think it, if i remember right it was like a five mile kayak access hmm. and then a three mile walk of up and down up and down up and down i mean steep terrain wow. so it wasn't feasible to be in there at first light um so you know, on opening day you know we did the whole kayak in and uh you know dylan hazen was with me and we kayaked in and then hunted close to uh, where we uh, beat the ax for the day. And then we hunted in the morning for a couple hours. And then we went back to this spot and we were set up at like uh, noonish or so, I think, if I remember. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, there for the duration. And of course, the sun doesn't set till like 830 or something like that, wow. you know, at that time of year there. Right. Uh, and I killed this buck, I'm going to guess probably like eight o'clock at night, something like that. Wow. Nice. Yeah, man. That's, that's quite a yak trip, dude. Five miles. That's a, that's, that's a fur piece. <laughs> it, no hill for a climber. <laughs> nice. The, uh, and then a three mile hike after that, man, like that's, that's, that's a haul, dude. Like that's, <laughs> yeah, it was a late night. You know, here's the thing about those Western early season hunts. You better just plan on being dehydrated because you can take a bunch of water, but it's not going to be enough. Right. Yeah, exactly, man. I mean, I was going to ask you, what was the, what was the weather like while you were there? It was hot. Was it hot? At, yeah. Hot during the day. And you know, it would get cool at night, you know, it was, right. uh, gosh, I think we were at, I don't even remember what the elevation was, but you know, it was, uh, it got noticeably you know, chillier at night than what it does here in Missouri. Right. Yeah. And that's the kind of challenge with some of those hunts, man. It's like you have to prepare for almost everything, right? Cause it's like be 90 during the day and then have like a 35 degree temp drop between that. And like when the sun goes down, you know, and then, yeah. And it's not mid season when you have your system lined out and everything's, you know, a model of efficiency. It's, uh, where's this and am i gonna forget that and you know you're feeling your way through <laughs> exactly man it's it's the beginning i never even thought of that man that early opener because i know for me it's <laughs> i i for sure the first at least the first hunt i'm gonna forget something you know in something yeah. ridiculous like i've forgotten my my release before you know it's like just stupid stuff like that i forgot my sticks before where it's like i literally just used my my predator platform as like a pseudo climber you know what i mean to climb to climb the tree you know what i mean in 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 my uh in my tether you know essentially use that as like my it was it was i was one platforming that wasn't one sticking yeah, right, i was right. one i was one platforming and uh you know so i've done stuff like that and i never even thought of that that early hunt you're out of state in new terrain you know it's like you're definitely not going to be 100% prepared you know but, but I mean, you made it happen, dude. So tell, walk me through, like, you know, I watched the video and, you know, you were in a, a sweet spot, like where it was just like, it seemed like there was a ton of buck activity in that particular area. I feel like it was like a, one of those swampy little bottoms that you were kind of talking about or like marshy little bottom or whatever. And 
I mean, did you kind of learn after the fact? Is that is that just like generally a place you know that is holding bucks during that time of year because of the you know there's water there and you know obviously a, a lot of really great cover, or is that just something that consistently in that area you think you know holds deer year round? Uh, yeah, I you know I don't know because I haven't been there any other time you know so right. I just don't know if it holds deer year round but. Um, you know, there's a, there was a lot of water in that, on that piece of ground. Uh, but for some reason, it just seems like those bottom marshes, flat, like, like beaver pond types of areas, Mm -hmm. uh, just hold deer, right? I mean, that, those bucks could go to any spot in that Creek and, you know, be less exposed or whatever, but there's something that draws them to that. Those uh, those low lying marshy pondy areas, you know, where there's a little bit of open water. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Dylan and I watched a buck, uh, a, a good mature buck, almost like prance down the field in, in, in a playful manner, and and like I, I don't even know how to describe it. Like jump out into the water, took several steps, like it was like a kid playing in the water, <laughs> and then submerged his head all the way underwater and came up with a mouthful of uh, like uh, you know some sort of pond vegetation and it was like shaking its head and everything it was, it was like, it was frolicking in the, in the pond. And, you know, I, I don't, so I don't know what it is, but something draws them to that, even though they're more exposed, it's more open and they could go into the Creek that leaves this beaver pond uh, and be not seen. Right. So I'm not sure what it is, but something draws them to it. Hmm. Probably just the social aspect of other deer being there too. Right. Yeah. Cause you're still in that early part of the season. I mean, where they're probably still kind of bachelored up at that point. Right. Cause you had a couple bucks in there if I'm not mistaken. Right. Yeah. I mean, it was September 1st. So there were still several bucks that, that had, uh, you know, were still on velvet, but um, yeah, the day before we went in and scouted that and we watched a, I, I think a couple of different bachelor groups come to the pond and it wasn't a, you know, groups of you know four five six or whatever i think it was a group of two and a group of three or something right right now your setup like were you able to shoot to the water or how did you how did you set up on that no it was too large of a you know, i mean it was diagonally across this thing was several hundred yards okay um you know we just picked the the area that was most beneficial with the conditions at the time right and that was you know hoping that we would get the the thermals late night to jive with the prevailing wind, which was like 30 miles an hour in the daytime, you know? Right. And they were uh, uh, contradicting each other. So it was going to be, we knew it was going to be tough, but, uh, you know, we were able to make it work. Right. Where the actual, the thermals um, just messed with this buck, messed with his head. Like he he couldn't figure it out, you know, uh, Hmm. when he did come in, because he came in from behind us, which is always interesting. Right. And, you know, you, but you could tell the thermals were uh, impacting his ability to pinpoint us and, may, you know, he'd fuck around long enough where I was able to get a shot at him. Right. Nice. So the uh, so was he when he was coming in from behind you, was he technically downwind of you at that point? No, he was kind of sidewind of the hmm. thermals, hmm. Uh, but he came in super slow. So. As he came in, when we first saw him, he would have been literally just out of our scent cone. But then he came in so slow that the the wind died down, 
and the thermals took over and then he by the time ultimately ended up being upwind of us <laughs> but he he knew something wasn't quite right so he, i mean we watched him for 20 minutes i bet wow and so over that 20 minutes was when that shift really happened you know and it was like you know uh, right around sunset and you know when you, you've got a steep hill uh to the west of you and you know, so the sunset earlier where we were, right? Um, you know, those thermals really started pulling hard, totally changing it. And if that wouldn't have happened, then I probably wouldn't have got a, ever even got a shot at it. Wow. Yeah, it was uh, it, it was it was interesting watching the uh, watching the hunt kind of kind of play out because I mean I remember watching, thinking before you took the shot, I was like, man, he looks like he's gonna spook. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like before you released your arrow, because I was just like, he was kind of he was doing that like head bob thing they like to do when they're trying to figure out what's going on. Like you could just tell he was, he was uneasy, um, but did give you just like an, enough time to, uh, to, to stick an arrow in him, man. But that, and, and that was awesome. It was, it was killer to see. It was velvet, right? He was still in velvet. If I'm not mistaken. No, no, no he was hard horn. Oh, was he? <clears throat> I don't know why I thought he was in, in, in velvet still, but it, but it was still quite a pack out, man. Like you had <laughs> the hike back to the yaks and then like the five mile yak trip back, you know, had to be, uh, had to be kind of brutal, especially in that heat, right? Yeah, I mean, I loved it. It was awesome. <laughs> it was uh, you know, physically demanding. I think we got up at like three that morning, and we got uh, back from, you know, packing them out and everything. Uh, and got back to that little sleeper cabin where we stayed at midnight, I think. So, you know, we were uh, we were at it, not just up. We were up and at it for twenty one hours. Man, that's uh, that's what you call some serious type two fun, there, man. So, like, so let me. Yeah, like, it was awesome. What, like, who all else did you guys have some some other folks in camp at the same time? Uh, well, Dylan and I were camped uh, just by ourselves, but uh, the THP crew was not too far away. Okay, and, just, you know, we were hang, hanging out with them during the day and everything. Right. I was just curious if you went and woke anyone else up. Like I would have woke everyone. I would have woke people up at camp and like, we're partying. I stuck, stuck this deer. <laughs> like going back to what we were talking about earlier, I would have been like, we're breaking out the bottle. Let's, let's get after it. You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It would have been a good a time to do it, but no, it didn't happen that time. No, you were probably dog tired too, man. Like you might've wanted to just fall over at that point. 21 hours, long kayak trip, heat, you know, long hike. Yeah. Yeah, I was pretty excited. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice, man. Well, I watched, um, I remember watching, not that we're going to do a hard transition here because I want to talk about the Missouri buck that you killed last year. Um, because I've, I've watched that video a couple times, actually, being being completely honest. Um, killer deer, number one, you know, and if anyone out there listening hasn't seen, seen it, I would go to Ted's YouTube channel and watch watch this buck it's it's an awesome hunt but you know if i'm not mistaken man you were you were hunting a completely different deer than, than this deer right like at the beginning of no. the season uh, yeah yeah okay yes i see yeah. what you're saying yes i was hunting a completely different deer yes so tell me tell me a little bit about that deer you was like the split g2 deer or something like that right it was a deer that you were hunting prior yeah. to this one yeah exactly split g2 probably 150 incher and I, I didn't really have any history with him from the year before because I just moved to this area. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, this is, I'm coming into my third season here in, in, in this area. And, I, you know, so it's, 
the first year you're just totally thumbed to the wind. You know what I mean? Second yeah. year you're trying to kind of piece things together. So this being my third year, I'm, I feel like I'm at a good advantage now. But yeah, so uh, last year coming into the early season, I, I I started getting a few pictures after I hung out cell cameras for my first time going that route of uh, a really nice buck coming into a, a bean field pretty close to my house, you know, here where I can just, uh, you know, access it via e-bike or walk to it and, you know, an adjoining property basically. Right. And I hunted him for the first week of the season. I, I think four times I was able to get out and I, you know, I just, I got sick of hunting kind of, you know, trying to chase something I didn't really understand all that well, I guess is what it was, you know, and I'm like, I'm, I just got sick of it. And so I, I, the next day I didn't hunt, I just scouted and I, you know, just was working from home that day and I went for a walk at lunchtime and I wanted to check out an area where I knew there was a good buck from last year that I had, you know, the previous year that I had a, an encounter with where he bedded down like 50 yards from me for 20 minutes or so. Hmm. And so I went went in there and I went through that area and sure enough I found where he was bedded and this was September 24th so you know September 24th of 2020 right uh, went in went in and and I made my scouting loop and checked all the obvious places but I saved this one for last uh, because I thought it would be the best and it just made the most sense and when I got there I saw what I kind of expected to see and that was you know. He is betting on this knob every time there's a south wind, hmm. and which is, you know, most predominant that time of year, and you know, big clumps of shit everywhere, right. uh, acorn shells all over, rubs all over, uh, you know, Just he is living in, stuff. on all, this knob, yeah, right? Everything you want to see, yeah. What and before I got to that knob, I also pulled a trail camera uh, down at the base of the knob, so. Hmm. Obviously, I was very excited to uh, to check that camera when I got back home. Um, but I, let me back up just a second. So after I got the trail camera, and as I'm heading to this knob, I'm intentionally walking as loud as I can, and you know, hoping to get a soft, long distance bump, not mm. get up on him to you know where he could even possibly smell me or anything like that. Right. That's so. <laughs> That's interesting. You answered the one question I was going to ask you, which was like, did you have a trail camera nearby there that kind of told you he was like to validate like all the signs there, but, and, and you know, which that was all you would really need, but having that validation of like trail camera pictures, right. It's like, okay, the sign is all there and he, and he is there. And that's interesting that you walked loudly out of there. And so was that, the, was the intention that you didn't want to accidentally get too close to him and you wanted to make sure he was moved off before you went, before you marched out. So, so he didn't have a, uh, he had a subtle encounter and not a really bad encounter. Was that kind of the idea? Precisely. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I wanted him to, you know, hear me coming from 200 yards away and just kind of, you know, jog off is, my, is the goal. Right. And, and, you know, that's exactly what happened. And, and I knew that when I got there, I knew he was in there that day. I could smell that he was there. And I just figured, um, you know, he's probably going to come back. So I knew I had like 20 minutes mm -hmm. is what I was thinking. I wanted to, that was my goal to be out of there in 20 minutes. And, you know, so I 
just took some quick video and, you know, showed the big old pile of shit and all the rubs and the beds around the edge of the knob and showed the tree that I said, all right, I'm going to come back and hunt this tree. In fact, uh, I had a, a, a one climbing stick for, um, for checking my trail cameras and I went ahead and hung that one stick because I knew I was going to come in in the morning and it would just be a little bit more quiet. You know? Right. So I want to back up for one, for one second. So what is it about that area that that knob particularly other than like, you know, it's good for a South wind and stuff like that. Was there anything else about that area that you felt made it like made it a good place for a buck to live or that, you know, a good deer would potentially live there. Was there any other characteristics about so, it that, that you, that you felt like, you know, just say, for example, if say you didn't even know that that buck was there and you just looked at it from a blank slate standpoint and just evaluated the spot. What was it about that spot that made it that you felt good about it? With a south wind, that's exactly where I would look at on the map and I would automatically hone in on. That's the first spot I would check. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of classic, you know what I mean? Right. And then when you add to it, uh, the acorn mass that's in that area is unbelievable. Mm-hmm. It sounds like everything's set up from a classic standpoint of like military crests, right? It's like all the things you would, it, it's almost like beast betting 101 almost is kind of what it sounded like. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you, you know, that's the aerial. You got to check this out. Right. Right. So when you originally found the area scouting, you know, did you, was it, was it that specific that you were like saw it on a map and you were like, boom, this is where I'm going to go. Or was it just kind of one of those things where you were kind of scouting through and you ended up finding some really good sign there and you were like, okay, stop the presses for a second. I think I just think I just walked into something that might be a gold mine or was it, or was it very intentional when you found it? So it would have been the year before that. And it was the first time going into that property after getting permission to hunt it. And uh, I went in in the complete dark. I, if I remember right, it was like October 23rd of 2019. And I went in completely blind in the dark, just following my Onyx beat, you know, right. Um, never, never having been in this area. And, I ended up having that encounter where he bedded down to deer from me for like 20 minutes. And I got some really good video of him and everything. And so, you know, I was just able to see it on the map, um, see it for what it was, a classic, you know. But it's worth, uh, you know, throwing a sit down to see. And obviously it panned out. Right. Now I know it, anytime I go scouting over in that piece, um, it's either going to be the first or the last place that I hit just because of where it's located. Right. Right. So you obviously had an encounter with a a really killer, a really killer deer there. The, the, the prior year, like you, like you mentioned. So talk to me a little bit about the tree setup. Like, did you set up any differently from that hunt that you had the encounter on or, you know, or was it the exact same kind of tree or was like, did you set up in a slightly different location? Like, Talk to me about how you picked that tree and what, what the intent was behind the setup. So the year prior, my first time in there, uh, I don't remember the conditions and I'm totally going off memory here, but if I had to say, um, it would have been a, like a Southeast wind on, uh, you know, 
weather app. Anyway, don't ever trust weather app. You know, I mean, <laughs> you don't have to do it for the you know, uh, prevailing wind, but that doesn't tell you what the wind is, or the you know the air movement is going to be. Because there's a difference between wind and air movement. Yeah, air movement to me is the the combination of wind and thermals in any given area at any given time. So my guess is that I went in there probably on a southeast wind at the time I saw, and uh, I was on the other side of the finger ridge, and sure enough, it didn't work out for me. Um, I That deer ended up smelling me, but only because I kind of forced his hand and, you know, uh, wasn't just patient, but I had to get to work. So if I could have just waited him out, it may have been different, but you know, regardless, I learned from that and learned how the uh, air movement, you know, the combination of wind and thermals work in that area to where I set up on uh, the opposite side of the finger ridge. And even though he came from the same direction, I was able to harvest him, um, you know, easily the, last year, you know, the second encounter within the same area. Right, right. And so was your access pretty bulletproof in that area or what was the access like, you know, getting in, getting in and out of that spot? The access is interesting because I'm, there's no way around it. I have to come from the same direction he's coming from. <laughs> so instead, you know, the first year I walked uh, from the easiest place to, uh, to low, you know, to access, to, you know, like from the corner diagonally to the stand right, or to the area of which to pick the tree in the dark. And that would have been okay, um, but, you know, it just didn't work out. But then learning from that, last year, on September 25th when I entered, I walked along the road at 4.30 in the morning or whatever, you know, 4 o'clock in the morning. I walked along the road and entered in what I knew would be a straight line to that tree to where that buck had the, the, the slightest chance of crossing my fence path as possible. And I had the tree selected that was right next to this big, huge deadfall that really, you know, wasn't likely to bring a deer right underneath my tree. Right. Nice. So that it sounds like, it sounds like you kind of tweak the access a little bit, just kind of being, being cautious. I've had a place like that too, where it's like the one I have one way in and one way out. And it is the way that the deer are going to travel. And I've had decent deer in this spot over time. Um, but I just can't ever seem to get the drop on them because they, because the access just isn't great. I've gone as far as like, I don't hunt it in the morning. I'll, I'll go in after first light and I'll actually, it's near a road, and so I'll wait for traffic to kind of come by, and I'll move when the traffic comes by. And so I'll use the road noise as cover, as cover sound and stuff like that. But it's still – I've actually even had to just abandon hunting it because it's just not – it's almost impossible to get in there and kill anything um, because they like to bed right at that kind of entrance point. And so you're almost like just completely screwed from the start. I've gotten lucky a few times and killed some does out of there because they just were bedded further back, and I was able to get in. But I've bumped bucks out of there early in the season. Like our openers rate around mid September and I've bumped bucks on multiple occasions walking in there, you know, the last week of September trying to sneak in, you know, in the morning and just, or in the afternoon, doesn't matter. Like they're, that's just where they bed. And, uh, so it was, it just ended up being a waste of my time. So 
you know, and I, I've done that too, where it's like, there's one piece, another piece where it's like, I had kind of iffy access kind of similar to what you were talking about. And I've just kind of picked out a spot and just barreled through like <laughs> perpendicularly, like I'm going to go straight to my tree, no matter what's in my way, I'm just going to go through whatever it is. Cause I'm just, I'm not going to cross where, where I'm expecting these deer to come from. Do you think, Hmm. Do you, where he came from, let me ask it this way. Whenever you finally saw him, where he came from, if you wouldn't have used that access, would the would the gig be, uh, would the gig have been up? Uh, if I would have used the access I used the previous year, I would not have got a shot. Was, yeah, I can say confidence that the gig would have been up for sure. Hmm. And basically, he paralleled my access, right? So he was coming from the same exact direction, but I, I basically lined it up to where I walked along the road, which, you know, he crossed that tent path at some point and wasn't alarmed because, you know, there's bikers and walkers and everything else. Right. Uh, or he could have been, he could have been in the, in that other side of the woods already, I guess, but unlikely. And I walk in a straight line from a house that is located there. There's one house in that stretch of road. And I walked in a direct line from that house to my tree, which the house, he, he wasn't going to walk right next to the house. So that means that in order for him to walk, you know, to cross my, my trail, he would have had to have walked out of, out of way of common sense mm-hmm. um, from where he would have avoided the house to where he would have avoided that deadfall. That was, you know, right next to me. And it's like a 400 yard, um, you know, stress between that house and my, and where I was. Uh, and he could certainly could have crossed that at some point, but, uh, it was just less likely, you know, that put the odds in my favor. Right. Right. Sounds like the access, <laughs> the change up of access. And sometimes it's just that small thing, right? It's like, even if you have good access otherwise, or you think you do, man, it's like, it sounds like that's the one little factor that was the, that just added enough percentage points in your favor to give you, to give you the opportunity. Right. And sometimes that's all it takes. Exactly. And the third, you know, I wasn't really worried about what happened, uh, you know, later in the morning, but I knew that the thermals and even when the prevailing wind did start to take up, uh, would jive in my favor and they would make that scent cone from my tree where I was hunting. You know, what was blowing my scent would be a small funnel uh, in conjunction with my, uh, my access also. Right. Right. And so I was watching the video, man. I actually went back and watched it again, again today. Um, and we just, cause I knew we were going to chat today and I knew I wanted to talk to you about this hunt. And, uh, Man, it seems like it seems like you had him near you for forever. And so how far away was he whenever you first when you first noticed he was there? Because I know that there were some other deer that were around. You heard like some grunting. You thought it were some does. But then like all of a sudden there he was (laughs) obviously not a doe. Right. And so it's I'm just I'm curious, like how far away was he when you first when you first noticed he was there? So I, I can't remember if I saw does first or if I heard that little slight grunt first, but either way, um, you know, I heard this grunt that was uh, barely audible, right? I mean, you could barely hear it, but 
there's nothing else in the woods that's making that noise, you know. So as an experienced hunter, you have the confidence to say, you know, like, you know that that was a grunt. And no matter how much time passes after you heard that, you would still know it's a grunt. In my earlier years, I would have talked myself out of it being a grunt, you know, or, oh, you know, even questioning, was that a grunt, you know? Right. Uh, and then you just go back to being distracted. But um, now I know that was a grunt, but I know there's a buck around. And then I saw the two does, and I just assumed that it was does over in that area, and it's total, you know, thick foliage still, of course. And um, so I'm just kind of, you know, just being as still as I can. I'm observing everything I possibly can. And finally, I see that one of those deer that I thought was a doe had antlers, right? <laughs> and as soon as I saw it, I recognized that, you know, that these are good set of antlers and this is the exact buck that I'm after. Um, and then he was around me for, I, I can't remember exactly, but it was around 20 minutes, I think. Um, for some reason, 16 minutes is sticking out in my mind, but I know that he was at 16 yards when I was at full draw and ready to shoot. And I can't, I may have even got to my click on my hinge. And I, the last thing I did was I looked down to at my camera frame and I saw that at the top of my uh, screen was the bottom of his feet, you know, his hooves. And I was like, oh man, so I had to let down. First year shooting a hinge, first attempt to legitimately self filming, and I had to let down and move the camera. And he's walking away from me at this point in time. And it, so I ended up shooting him at 26 yards, but I did get it on film and it was worth it. It was really cool. Yeah, man. That I, I, I tell you what, man, that was, um, it made, I mean, I knew that you killed the deer, but watching it again today, it made me nervous when you started moving the camera. Like, <laughs> not going to lie. You know, it's like, you know, did you kind of go into it saying that I'm like, I'm only taking the shot or any shot if it's going to be on film? Because I feel like that's critical when you're filming that you either you make the decision before you walk in that I'm either a only going to shoot if it's in frame or B, I'm going to do my best to get it in frame, but I'm not going to forego a shot to to make sure it's on film. Did you already kind of make that decision in your mind before you walked in? Yes, and I am the latter. And it's funny because my buddy Josh and I talk about this all the time. And I am going to harvest the deer. Absolutely, no doubt about it. Um, if it comes down to it, I will. I will prioritize the harvest over the footage, hundred yeah. uh, percent. because I'm a hunter. I love it. But when you can get in their bedroom undetected, and you know the way he came in, and you know you know you're you're just so supremely aware of the condition at the time and you know that that buck is comfortable uh I, it just i never even really sweated it you know i mean yeah i knew the amount of foliage on there that, and and the wind in my favor that i could get away with a little bit of noise and it's early season and the noise the woods were loud and it was raining acorns and the squirrels are you know going crazy and there was other deer in the air there's a lot of distractions a good soft gentle wind the whole time so I knew that I would be able to get away with that type of stuff. Yeah. Um, if it was a calm, clear, cold, late season morning, I'm probably going to shoot that deer and then turn on the camera. <laughs> you know <what> I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, exactly. I mean, I think that's a good point, too, is just like, one, dude, watching the, the footage, I mean, that deer couldn't have been any more calm. 
like he had not a care in the world, you know, while he was, while he was hanging out in there. Um, but I think that's a good point to make is like, even if you're not filming is just kind of being aware of like all those kind of factors, because those can be the types of things that make or break a shot opportunity, right? Like all the things that you mentioned, the foliage, like how cold it is, right? Like, you know, just, do you have cover sound around you? Is there a little bit of a stiff wind? Like all those things, you know, are the things that make or break, like how much movement and or like, I don't know, shenanigans for the lack of a better way to put it that you can get away with in, in a tree, you know, cause there are instances where, man, you just don't have as much cover or you don't have like a stitch of wind to help you out or whatever. And, ever, and everything's going to happen, you know, on a razor's edge kind of right. And you were in like, yeah, it's tough, isn't it? yeah, yeah. I mean, I had that this year, you know, it's like I blew an opportunity at a, at one of the deer I was trying to kill in this one area. And it was like the week of Thanksgiving, I think, or the week leading up to Thanksgiving. And I, uh, there was this, you know, uh, a, a, a scrape area I had known about and i kind of went in to hunt it. And there were a couple of deer that had been using it over the period of time. And I would, ha- I was happy to kill any, any one of them. And, uh, I was in my tree and like, you know, this deer popped out kind of like almost like your Nebraska hunt, man. Like he popped out from like the last place I would have expected a deer to pop out of, you know, and, and it was one of those things where late in the season just got back, you know, or not too long after getting back from Missouri and grinding for two weeks. And I probably was a little fatigued. Right. And, and was just distracted. And so when I saw that deer, I actually convinced myself when I heard it, there had been turkeys earlier in the morning and I convinced myself that it was still turkeys, you know, in that area. And then I saw a deer, like the body of a deer. And then I convinced myself that it was just some does or it was a doe. Right. And I'd never picked up my bow. And then the next time I looked over his head popped out of the brush and it was one of the deer that I wanted to kill. And by that point he'd already crossed the barrier where it's like, because of where he came out, there was nothing between he and I except air and opportunity at that point. And he was at like, (laughs) at like 15 yards, you know what I mean? And so, you know, I tried to get my bow. I find I got my bow off, you know, off the tree, but I couldn't get turned because he was coming from my weak side. And so I couldn't get turned because he could just see everything. And like, it was one of those days too, where I did not have a stitch of wind and he was coming in so close that my scent probably would have blown over top of him. Cause he was coming in down. He was coming in fr- behind me. And I was like, if I can just get a gust of wind for like, I just need a little bit <laughs> and he won't wind me and I can probably get turned and shoot him. Once he gets to my strong side, I'll be good, you know, but he got directly behind me at five yards and I could not, it was like Tommy boy sitting in the boat could use a little wind here. Like that was exactly the scenario, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that was exactly the scenario. It's like, all I needed was like a little bit and I probably would have been able to slip a shot off, but as fate would have it, I had no wind whatsoever. And he got to five yards and he hit my ground scent and he just looked directly up at the tree and there I was. And I couldn't do, I couldn't do anything. <laughs> but, that sounds a lot like the, the Missouri buck that I missed. Uh, just in those situations, like they were, it, everything is on edge. Oh man, that's the uh, quintessential anxiety of a bow hunter, right there, right? Yeah, it is. It is, and I couldn't do anything. I, I like he bound off. It was funny because he didn't like completely blow out. Like he saw me, and he just kind of turned around and like quickly walked the other direction, you know. And, and 
you know, he didn't like jump, take off running. Like there was, there wasn't a lot of drama necessarily. And I'm just sitting there and I, I literally just started laughing. Cause I was like, you can't yep. like, I was like, what are you going to do? You know what I mean? I was like one of the deer I wanted to kill. And the reason I was laughing is because it was such a rookie mistake, such a rookie mistake to like, just not pick your bow up and be ready. You know, it was just being lackadaisical man in it. And it bit, and it bit me, but, uh, Man, I've kept you on here for about an hour and 20 minutes, man. I want to be uh want to be sensitive to your time, but I have one more question for you that I want to ask you before I let you go if if you're down with it. All right, folks, we had a little technical difficulty on the on the very last question, but we're going to squeeze this bad boy in cuz I always like to ask this question. So, this one's kind of on the putting you on the spot a little bit, Ted. Not going to lie. So, we'll see we'll see what you how you answer this one. So, I like to close with this one because I, I just kind of like to get people's perspective. I, I had my buddies from Exodus ask me this question on one of their podcasts, and I always thought it was kind of a cool close. Um, and it also gives me some ideas for who who else to maybe have on the podcast at some point. But you're building a three-on-three basketball team with the best hunters that you know. You're, you can only choose three. They can be dead, alive, people you know, people you don't know. Doesn't really Doesn't really matter. Who are the three hunters you're going to put on your team if you had if your life depended on the three of them filling tags? Andy May, myself, and Man, that's tough. That's a great question. Uh... Yeah, it's it's a tough it's a tough one, man. It's not a it's not an easy easy question whenever you're putting you can only choose three because i mean you know like we both know a lot of really good hunters right so it's like it's hard to kind of narrow them down specific to deer hunting specifically deer yeah bow hunting whitetails Zach man our three is almost the same mine was <laughs> mine was uh zach andy may and joe joe rentmeester yeah yeah yeah, those are those are those are those are my three. But uh, I might have to add you to my list, man, because you you get it done with some some regularity, brother. So um, I might have to put you in my you would be on my, t- my in my starting five. How about that? <laughs> well, hopefully after this year, I'm gonna get cut. Right, right. <laughs> nice, man. Well, hey, dude, I appreciate you coming on, brother. Uh, technical difficulties or not, it's always a good time catching up with you and chatting and sharing a uh, sharing a bourbon with you. Before I let you get out of here, though, let folks uh, out there listening know where they can uh, follow along with your your outdoor excursions. Yeah, thank you. Head uh, on YouTube. And Teddy Bride 21 on Instagram and on Facebook. All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. And hell, while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a sub there, too. I'd be super appreciative if you'd be able to do those two things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout-out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, and Maven Optics. And until next time, we'll see y'all.
All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do-hard-shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.